All right, let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is one of those messages that's going to be difficult to give an invitation. Uh, I'm going to give you some really good stuff tonight. And it's needed stuff. It's part of a pastor's job. Every once in a while, you just have to do the pastoral thing, you know. Uh, it's a lot different being a pastor than it is being an evangelist, just speaking in somebody else's church to where, you know, you have a few messages, you bring a few messages and so on. But the pastor has the responsibility of seeing to it that his people get everything and also in, in light of the different things that they've heard. We have to deal with people individually, together, the impact beliefs, all of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we seem to get some of the frustration of the Apostle Paul as he deals with the church that he just called carnal. And of all things, it was the church that he started. This is three years down the road now. And he writes and he says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. Now, this is not the text, but... I can't read that without making a comment. We judge an awful lot of things before the time. We even judge the goodness of God before the time. We judge whether or not he's been good to us by how I feel right now. But now's not the end. Now's the wrong time to judge. I mean, God is good to us. He's promised us heaven. I don't think anybody in heaven is going to be complaining about the job God has done. Isn't that right? But you got a lot of people, Matt, I've had people tell me they thought God did them wrong. I said, man, you're judging way too soon. But even the psalmist did that from time to time when things weren't going the psalmist way. In Psalm 77, he starts out crying to God because of his situation. God doesn't answer him right away. And so he begins complaining and doubting whether or not God even listens to him anymore. He says, hath God forgotten to be gracious? Will he remember no more? And then he says, I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. What was his problem? He was judging too soon. The children of Israel had that problem, of course, when Moses got the children of Israel behind him and he goes into Pharaoh and said, the Lord said, let my people go. When he comes out of there, Pharaoh's not only not going to let him go, but he's going to give them more work to do. And so the people go to Moses and complain and then Moses runs to God and complains. God, you said you were going to get them out. You were going to use me, and they're not out. Things are tougher for them. They're judging too soon. There's a lot of things that they're going to go through, and God's going to part the Red Sea for them, but not yet. It wasn't time yet. Now, the great thing about God is he always does things right on time. Even when he's four days late, Mary and Martha, he's still right on time. Never could have seen the resurrection from the dead that had to be a marvelous sight had Lazarus not died. But while they were mourning, they kept saying, Lord, 
if the Lord had been here, he'd not died. Now, you're judging too soon, folks. God's got something great here for you. So he says here to the Corinthians, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to the light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sake, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. We often talk about great men. Have you ever seen a great man disappoint a whole lot of people? Well, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Great men. Don't think about men greater than what they are. Hey, I don't care who the pastor is. He's still a man. I had a professor at Tennessee Temple said something over and over again that helped me a lot, has helped me through the years. He said even the best men are still men at best. If you're expecting them to be perfect, you're going to be terribly disappointed. Because nobody's perfect. Perfect doesn't come till heaven. So if you get that, you can go on. I I know people dropped out of church because they had faith in so and so. You're facing the wrong place. Jesus said, have faith in God. God's absolutely perfect. Now that's extra too. I got a lot of extra stuff for you tonight. But I got a lot to give you as well. So then he says, um, let's see, that no one of you be puffed up for one, one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? As if thou hast not received it. Now you're full. Now you're rich. You've reigned as kings without us. And I would to God ye did reign that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has set forth us apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Now, let me ask you a question. You just read it. Very clear words. This is extra two, by the way. Was Paul a fool? He says here, we are fools for Christ's sake. But ye are wise in Christ. Well, that's a strange statement in light of the fact he just said back in chapter 3, Brethren, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk, not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet uh, carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and division, are ye not carnal and walk as men? This is known as sarcasm. How you get that? Paul's not saying he was a fool. But they thought they were so smart and so spiritual. And he's treating them like the way they felt about themselves right now. Even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own own hands, being reviled, we bless being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things under this day. I write not these things to shame you, 
But as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Now, the phrase that I want to preach from is the one in verse 15. When he says, for though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ. Remember that this is a letter of rebuke. They were to be rebuked. They were a divided people. They thought they were spiritual. And the Holy Spirit of God has Paul write and tell them they're carnal. They're not spiritual at all. They're like babes, but they shouldn't be babes. They're old enough to be mature, but they're not mature. They're carnal. And he says, for where there's envying and strife and division, are ye not carnal and walk as men? So he's writing to these people to rebuke them. They were divided up. Matter of fact, they had little camps in their church about who liked Joe Arthur and who liked Max Barton and who liked Mike Allison. And, and they had little camps like that. And the funny thing was, all those guys agreed. It wasn't that here were, here were three different preachers with, the, with Apollos and Peter and Paul. We're not talking about three different preachers that were on the outs with one another and taught different things. They all taught the same stuff. What a silly thing to be divided over. Because the church is to meet around truth. And as long as the preacher's bringing the truth, they ought to be united in that, not divided. What a strange thing to be divided over, over different preachers they may have different styles, but they're all preaching the truth. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? It sounds weird when you think about it. That shouldn't be happening. But they thought they were spiritual, and they're going to come up with all kinds of things. I mean, uh, here's the people that thought they were spiritual. And uh, for instance, in verse 1 of chapter 5, it is reported commonly that there's fornication among you, and such fornication that as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Now look at this. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that had done this deed might be taken away from you, uh, from among you. You're puffed up about it. Man, these people, they, they got some real problems. Now, in ministering to these people, of course, the apostle Paul was there for 18 months when he planted the church. He's been gone for a couple of years now. He's writing back to him on the basis of what he has heard about the situation at Corinth. I mean, these people, they sat under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. You know, I, I'm sure every pastor can say this. They've had all kinds of people sit under the ministry and never got it. I've had people think that because they heard Dr. So-and-so back in the 1940s, therefore they were more spiritual than other people. Well, if they didn't obey him, how did that make them more spiritual? Your spirituality isn't found in who you sat under. But think about this. Paul didn't have the Internet to contend with. I mean, when people went home at night, they went home. Tonight, they go home and they get on the Internet. They check out their Facebook site. They check out the web blogs or they carry on discussions over different doctrines, some of which are so totally ridiculous, shouldn't have anything to do with them. After all, a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject 
That's what it says. Well, people will stay on those sites, continue to argue about things you shouldn't be arguing about anyway uh, because you put their error up with the truth. You've elevated error to truth. And now you have no division there at all in righteousness. Man, that gets frustrating. But he couldn't be everywhere at one time when he'd find out about something from one of the churches he would start. He would often write them, try to straighten out some of the problems that were taking place. Um, And yet they weren't bombarded. These people had lives to live. They didn't spend all their time with their phone recording every email and text that they'd get. Well, that was a different day. And carry on running conversations and feuds over different doctrines. But when Paul was confronted with it, he'd write scripture, of course. Because after all, this is the beginning of the New Testament church in this time. And there were a lot of things that had not been set up for the New Testament church yet. And the Apostle Paul did. You remember in Acts chapter 15, when the church at Jerusalem wrote to the Gentile churches about those necessary things, it's a very short list. But we find if we read the epistles, there's a lot more that the Holy Spirit added to that list later on. For somebody to try to think, all we've got to deal with is that short list of necessary things. No, there's a lot more things if you read the rest of your New Testament. Today, people can can stay on all these different false doctrine sites. People fellowship with heretical teachers on the basis of likes and not belief. In some cases, they choose to follow young men who've read a book. You don't look at their qualifications. You don't look at what their doctrinal statement is, where they stand or what they believe. They read a book. And so suddenly they have as much authority as, as people who've been in the ministry for numbers of years and been greatly used of the Lord and men who have seriously studied the Bible for decades and memorized good portions of it. I mean, seriously studied the scripture. And here's some young guy who's read a book. And God help us if he ever writes a book based on the book that he read. Matter of fact, I remember when I was pastoring Tennessee Ridge Baptist Church. I went into the barber. This is when I, when I first went there. And I went to the barber who was a Southern Baptist preacher. And I introduced myself and he asked me where I went to school and uh, I said, I went to Tennessee Temple. Oh, he said, you're one of Dr. Robertson's boys. You know, all you guys believe the same thing. And I said, well, that's because we read the same book. <laughs> we read the Bible. We didn't have the denominational handbook to go by. Amen. That's pretty good stuff right there. <laughs> but it's absolutely amazing. It's almost impossible to pastor people spiritually today because they have 10,000 instructors. Now, obviously, Paul was exaggerating, but the point the Holy Spirit is making here, he's making this point to a church that should have been spiritual and they were carnal. You'll listen to anybody. And that's a problem. You'll listen to anybody. I'll tell you what, there's a whole bunch of people I'm just not going to listen to. When I find out that they're heretics, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to waste my time Amen. listening to them. I mean, 
In the first part of this book, preachers were treated like a cafeteria buffet, who they wanted. In chapter 5, they were proud of their liberty lifestyle. Hey, listen, we believe in grace. We've got a man in our church committing fornication with his father's wife. Hey, aren't we open-minded? We're saved by grace, man. And he rebukes them about that. They were proud of it. They were lifted up. And he said, you should have mourned. And then he tells them the next time they're together to turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. See, that's part of that whole problem with the grace crowd, the false grace crowd that's been around now for about the last 15, 20 years. Chapter 6, they didn't understand differences in believers taking their problems to the lost. They were freely airing the problems between believers in the courts with people who don't even know God. Man, these people have gotten into wickedness. He has to straighten them out on on, uh, marriage and divorce and straighten them out simply on purity in relationships with the opposite sex. He has to deal with them about that. I mean, this is stuff people ought to get. In our society, we come from a society that doesn't get it. But we've got a complete Bible. At least one thing the Corinthians say, well, we didn't have all the Bible yet. Cut us a little break. We didn't have all the Bible yet. But Paul doesn't cut him a break. I mean, Joseph had even less Bible, and yet he knew better than to go in under Potiphar's wife. And he knew it was a great sin. Always kills me when I preach on that passage about we're to flee fornication, and every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Now as concerning the things you wrote unto me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless to avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife. The Bible is very, very plain. Before you get married, you're not to touch. I mean, it's so simple. The only, the only reason some people want to get real deep into that passage, they want to find some deep meaning to contradict what it clearly says. And it always kills me when I hear some young single who has spent what, 30 years studying the Word of God? They'll come up and say to the preacher, well, preacher, I just don't agree with you on that. Oh, really? What, it, what does it clearly say? Well, no, I just don't agree with you. Now, what does it clearly say? The problem is not me. Your problem's with God. God wrote it, and he wrote it for even simpletons in 2023 to get it. I admit I'm not deep. There's nothing deep about me at all. I just believe what he says. Chapter 6 and 7, even our relationships are subject to the word of God. Chapters 8 through 10, they had people who explained away obedience to even what the Holy Ghost had told the New Testament church in Acts 15, that they weren't to eat meat offered in sacrifice to idols. But boy, they thought the ones who were eating meat offered in sacrifice to idols thought they were strong in the Lord. They thought they were wise in the Lord, and he has to rebuke them for that. So the weaker brethren here, it's amazing how many people still preach that the weaker brethren in Acts chapter 8 are the people who thought it was wrong to eat meat. They were the uh, eat meat offered in sacrifice to idols. They weren't the weak ones, they were the strong ones. 
Read the passage, man. And for these people who thought they were strong, who came up with their silly reasoning to go ahead and disobey the Holy Spirit of God, he says, if you call the, cause the weaker brother to offend, you have sinned against Christ. Now tell me that's not a bad thing. To sin against Christ is a very bad thing. I'm not saying you're not going to heaven. I'm just, I'm just saying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12, I, I don't know why, my mind is just stuck on this. I know I'd seen it before, but last time we were going through 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12, when he begins his discussion on the resurrection from the dead, Paul says, how say some of you there is no resurrection from the dead? Can you believe in a New Testament church, Brother Hoffacker, that there would be people who didn't believe in the resurrection? But there were people at Corinth like that. Now, I don't believe that they believed that when Paul was there. Who talked to them? Who had they been talking to to suddenly come up with this idea that there is no resurrection from the dead? Matter of fact, the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you're not saved. You've got to believe that. But that's like people who are male, but they want to believe they're female, or people who are female, but want to believe they're male. You're nuts. And wicked on top of that. You get to 2 Corinthians, and they still had some of the same problem. Chapter 10, verses 12 through 18. And then all of chapter 11, there were still people who were creating problems there at Corinth. But what was their problem? They had 10,000 instructors. So how does Paul end that up with? He says, wherefore I beseech you, be followers of me. He'll tell them that again in chapter 11 and verse 1. Be therefore followers of me as dear children. Now, let me show you what happens when you just get involved in every kind of strange belief that's out there. Listen, I know some preachers that spend half of their days on the computer talking to rebels and unbelievers on their web blogs thinking somehow they're going to convince them that their heresy is really heresy. And they're wasting their time when they could spend it pastoring a church. And preparing messages. But go over to Galatians chapter 1. Let me give you a few of these. This is all just my way of introduction. And I don't say that to scare you, but it is. We haven't had a, a long service in a long time. We need to get to back. You, you want the old time way? Man, some of you remember when we didn't even start preaching until 10 minutes after 7. And if we got out before 8, a lot of times on Sunday night, it was, what was wrong with the preacher? Is he sick tonight? What are we, what's happening? Anyway, notice Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now notice, right away after his greeting, he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him 
that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that would trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have received, unto, uh, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Now this whole book, the, the theme of the whole book is we're justified by faith. We are not justified by works. We are justified by faith. He mentions that several times throughout the book, all the way through chapter 5. He's still using the term justified by faith. Galatians is not about standards. It's about being justified by faith. He had won these people to Christ. By faith, they trusted Christ as Savior. But after the Apostle Paul left the, the region of Galatia, the Judaizers came in. That was people, many of them from the Jerusalem church, who said, basically, you trusted Christ, that's fine, but now you have to be circumcised according to the law of Moses and keep the law of Moses in order to stay saved. That begins, by the way, in Acts chapter 15, which sparks the Jerusalem council in 50 AD. They were listening to outsiders bring a different gospel than that which he had preached. Like the Corinthians, they also, it appears, had 10,000 instructors. They had one man that won them to Christ, but they're not listening to him. And this got so bad. Go over to chapter 4 of Galatians. This got so bad. Verse 11, I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are, and ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through the infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first, and my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. Now, you know, that's got to be rather disheartening. He won these people to Christ. They were so excited about getting saved. And now some false preachers come in and they listen to them that are bringing another gospel. And they've listened to him, and now they count Paul an enemy instead of the friend and spiritual father that he was. It's amazing. But wait. He says, they zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. And then he talks about how he travailed in bringing them to Christ. So we go over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. When he says, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some web bloggers, some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, 
for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sight of man, men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. 10,000 instructors. Who are you going to listen to? I want to spend a little bit of time tonight on some misteachings that are very dangerous. When verses are taken out of context... Our people, because they don't like what the Scripture clearly says, they try to destroy people's faith in what the Scripture does say. I'm not starting a debate tonight, but revealing to you error and giving you Bible truth. And every Madison Baptist church person ought to decide, who are you going to learn from? Now, we've got a lot of great teachers here at Madison Baptist Church. We are blessed and praise the Lord for them. They stand upon the things of God, but it seems like Like sheep, we want to go to the edge of the fence. And we want to eat from the other field instead of the field that God's given us. Now, two very dangerous heretical teachings that are real big today. One is Calvinism and the other is the plurality of Bibles. And by the way, they they go together. They go together. That's why Bob Jones changed their Bible from the King James to the ESV. And they are now big pushers of Calvinism. I'm not talking about Bob Jones High School. You see, the problem is, if you can't decide which Bible to use, you will forever be changing your doctrine. And as I said this morning, that's as old as hath God said. Now, for that, we need to understand some things about the law of God. There's a lot of misteaching out there about the law of God. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. People love to use this verse, say, well, anything's back in the law. Don't, you don't have to be concerned about it. That's the law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And as wonderful as that sound, they are using that to deceive and mislead. Now, it does say in verse 24 of Galatians chapter 3, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. So one of the jobs of the law was to be a schoolmaster to bring lost people to faith in Christ. I look at the law. Law says I'm a sinner. As a sinner, I'm guilty. I'm condemned. I deserve judgment. The law tells me I can't live good enough. I can't live good enough to satisfy the justice of God. I'm lost. There's nothing I can do to save me. And what it does, it points me to the one person who obeyed all the law, who fulfilled it, who didn't break any of it. Now, it's his father's word. He's exalted his word above his name. And what the law does is it shows me my guilt, shows me his perfection, and I realize I need to turn to him by faith. And when I trust him, the law has done its schoolmaster's job. Now, we see examples of that in the word of God. But is that all that it's good for? So there are some people who basically teach, don't worry about the law, you're under grace, it did its job, it brought you to Jesus, okay, that's fine. 
we're done. But what does the scripture say? Go over to the book of Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. I have an amazing statement here. By the way, in Romans chapter 7, he tells us the law is good and the law is holy. Is, not was, still is. But anyway, in chapter 15, he says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Why? That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now, let me tell you what the law is good for. According to Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, it's good for patience and comfort and hope. Well, where does it teach us patience? How about in Job? I'd say Job teaches us a lot about patience. I would say that uh, Moses, his life, teaches us a lot about patience. First 40 years of his life, he was brought up in Pharaoh's court. Thought he was going to deliver Israel. Didn't spend the next 40 years, 40 years, 40 years being on the backside of the desert taking care of sheep. And then the last 40 years leading God's people through the wilderness, getting them out of Egypt. Uh, Man, that takes patience. We just got done studying Joseph. God had a plan for Joseph. God was going to make him a ruler. He gave Joseph that clue with the dreams that he had. But first, he has to spend 13 years as a slave and a prisoner. I'd say that takes patience. Guess what? That's recorded in the law. The first five books of Moses are called the law. It's recorded in the book of Genesis. The law. That's how we learn patience. We learn comfort from the word of God. Comfort in the promises of God being fulfilled. Comfort concerning God's presence. We see that in several Bible characters. We'll not take take the time to preach on them. And hope. And the idea of hope in your New Testament is the expectation of God's promise. It's not like, you know, I hope this is going to happen or hope that's going to happen. No, listen, I know Jesus is coming back. It's going to happen. It's a sure thing. He's already told us it is a done deal. He is going to come back looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. So we see hope throughout the law as mentioned there. By the way, at the promise of the virgin birth, Isaiah chapter uh, 7 and verse 14 Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 in the Old Testament, you got the promises of his coming to Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, we don't have the time to do this tonight. Matter of fact, it would take a good couple days of study to go through all the quotations and references in the New Testament to the Old Testament. And it's amazing how many New Testament doctrines that when Paul goes to prove them, he goes to an Old Testament verse to prove them. When he talks about being justified by faith, he says, what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. So the law, yes, was my schoolmaster to bring me to Christ, but that's not all. It teaches me as a Christian patience and comfort and hope. It also teaches us so that we may learn holiness. Go back to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, notice this. He says, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat, did all drink the same spiritual drink. 
uh, drink, for they drank from that, of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, underline verse 6, for it says, Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. But wait, I'm under grace. Why should I even worry about it? He says, he said, I wrote this. Where did he write it? He wrote it in the law. We find the stories he talks about here in the book of Exodus and also in the book of Numbers. It's in the books of Moses, the law. Law is given by Moses, grace and truth by Jesus Christ. In the law, what does it do? It teaches us Christians how we're supposed to live. Things we're not supposed to do. He goes on, verse 7, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon the ends of the world are come. And listen, that stuff was recorded for us. A lot more happened. Think about their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. He didn't record everything. Why did he record the things he recorded? Why did he pick out those particular things? He says he did that for us to learn. So that we don't do what they did. Even under grace, I'm not supposed to do what they did. When they sinned, when they did wrong, it was wrong. Don't tell me, well, as my schoolmaster, I'm not under it anymore. You're not under it anymore as far as salvation is concerned. But guess what? He still got instruction, remember? All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. See, it's still good for you. So they were to learn uh, holy things. They were not to lust after evil things, not to commit fornication, not to tempt Christ, not to murmur. They were our examples. Why? That we may grow to maturity. Or perfection. When he says all scriptures given by inspiration of God, and let me quote it again, all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness. Get this, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In other words, God's giving us everything that we need. And it doesn't say all scripture was profitable. It says it is profitable right now. See, I'm not just a 27-book Bible believer. I'm a 66-book Bible believer. I believe all 66 books of the Bible. They're all Scripture, and they're all given for us. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says the law is good. Get this now. If a man use it lawfully. If you teach the law as a necessity to keep in order to go to heaven, you're using it unlawfully. But if you're teaching the law 
for the things that we mentioned right here, for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction, righteousness, now you're using it lawfully. Yes, there are things we're not supposed to do. And it doesn't make any difference if they're recorded in the New Testament, Old Testament, or both Testaments. God says it, that's so. It's in one of the last books of the Bible, and you've heard me say this many times, that God gives us the definition of sin. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. That was written 60 years after Jesus died on the cross. It was written probably some 40 years, maybe even 50 years, after Paul wrote the book of Galatians. Wow. So guess what? There are things that the law still has responsibility for me in my life. And then he says, turn over to 1 John chapter 5. This is powerful. 1 John chapter 5. He says in verses 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Wow, that's amazing. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verses 45 through 48, So shall I keep the law continually, forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. I will delight myself also in thy commandments which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments which I have loved. And I will meditate in thy statutes. So we understand the law was given, yes, for us. Thank God for those of us who are saved. It helped pointed us to the Savior. But it's still working in different ways in my life. It still has things to teach me, things to help me with, things to remind me of for righteousness that we all need. So don't let anybody use, I don't care how nice a web blog they have. I don't care how many, how many books they've written. Don't let them even come close to ever convincing you that the law is not important. It is. And God says it so, so many times in the New Testament. Now then we have another problem with these people. And that is their misuse of the fruit of the Spirit and sanctification. Now, practically, all of us could quote Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. I really need you to have your thinking caps on right now. I need you to follow along. I need you to pay attention. I want you to get this. Again, let me quote it again. Galatians 5, and 23. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. We love all that, man. Love, joy, peace. That just sounds so wonderful in kumbayaish. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, that is part of the fruit of the Spirit. But, and, and what they'll tell you, you know, God is love and the Holy Spirit is love. And there's no judgment. I mean, we, we are under grace. There's no judgment. And we get to float through the Christian life on love, joy, peace, 
Unfortunately, we do that by our modern-day definitions of love, joy, peace and not biblical definitions of love, joy, and peace. Uh, for instance, go over to Ephesians. Once you see it, you might mark it in your Bible. Might even make a little note out beside Galatians 5:22 and 23 about Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 9. And I'm going to give you some Bible examples of this here in a minute. But in Ephesians 5:29 or 5:9, 5:9, he says, "For the fruit of the spirit." Is this a different spirit? No, same spirit. For the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and what? Oh my goodness. Now, Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So the love must be in truth and righteousness. Joy must be in goodness and righteousness and truth. Peace in goodness and righteousness and truth. You understand, otherwise you're going to have a tainted love, a tainted joy, and I could, we could go through the rest of the fruit of the Spirit on that. So everyone that follows this teaching without Ephesians 5.9 immediately drop their standards and head to the movie theaters and treat services as a place of disrespect. But what about the Apostle Paul? Let's, let's just look at reality for a minute. I mean, after all, did anybody write more about grace than the Apostle Paul himself? So, first of all, let's see a few things that he wrote. Go over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Notice he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a what? He's not talking about being cast into hell. He's talking about being disqualified from the race. We are to run according to God's word. And notice Paul says, I bring my body into subjection. Why? He didn't want to be a castaway. He didn't want to be set on the sidelines. Now, I know some people live for the sidelines, but he didn't want that. I know when I played ball, when I played Uh, high school baseball and football and college baseball. I hated sitting in the dugout. I wanted to be in the game. Now, here's Paul serving the Lord. Notice how he lives so that he not be a castaway. I thought he was saved by grace. He is. He is. Gave him a real desire to not do some things so that he could be used of God. You go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice beginning in verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, that sounds like work to me. That sounds like some obligation there. And that the judgment seat of Christ, nobody's going to be hop, skipping, and jumping as they get up there, smacking their bubble gum. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, where does love come in? Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ grabs me and moves me to keep serving him. The love of Christ. You know, you know what we're raising up? We're raising up a bunch of Christian hippies who just want to lay around, soak up what they want out of life and don't want to have to be responsible for anything spiritually. We've, we've become Maynard G. Krebs. You've got to really be old to know who that was. Unfortunately, I remember. All right, we'll go over to Romans chapter 6. Romans, we're moving along. We're, we're making good time. Romans chapter 6. Notice beginning in verse 5. You notice in a lot of these, I'm giving you a whole lot of verses. I'm giving you whole passages. I'm not just cutting verses up. In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, he says, um, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now, notice. Likewise, reckon. Well, he says, reckon ye. So who has to reckon? Us. This is a command to us, something that we're supposed to do. No, no, I don't have to obey those commands. I'm under grace. You're under God. He says, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I'm to reckon myself dead to sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Who's the responsibility on there? Us. It's not God's job to keep me from sin. It's me not to sin. He says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. Thank God, because of the truth he just gave, I can do that, and you can too. Uh, that, you should not, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Whose responsibility is that? That's ours. But I'm, I'm under grace. Yes. And for all of you who are under grace, this is your responsibility. You're to do it. Not in order to go to heaven, but because you're going to heaven. Amen. Please understand the difference in those things. Uh, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. There he says it. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? 
circle the answer. What is it? God forbid! So whose responsibility is it not to sin? Ours! What about that? Why? Because I'm under grace. You see, these jokers, and then they're all over the internet, that have totally misdefined grace, think, don't worry about it. This is where Calvinism comes from. And I'll tell you, because basically if you sin, since God is sovereign, he must have wanted you to sin. And since you're under grace, it's okay, it doesn't matter. That's a lie straight out of hell. It's a lie from the devil. And boy, the 10,000 instructors on the internet are trying to pass that garbage onto everybody. Preaching of the apostles was filled with the Spirit. By the way, wouldn't you think if they were filled with the Spirit that they would exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Because there are a lot of people, that's what, that's what they teach. So, therefore, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. So, wait a second. Why is it you go through the entire book of Acts, you read every message that the Holy Spirit of God recorded for us, whether it be by Peter or Paul or Philip or who else, whoever else in the Scripture. There is not one time in the book of Acts where they ever said, God loves you. There's not one time where they said, Jesus loves you. Don't misunderstand. God does love us, and Jesus does love us. But for people filled with the Spirit to listen to some of these jokers who've got the fruit of the Spirit all wrong, you would think that that'd be coming out of their mouth every other statement. And they never said it. Why did they never say that? And yet we read that they were filled with the Spirit. So how did these guys then preach? Paul says, testifying both to the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Acts chapter 24, verses 24 and 25. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. You know, people think that they're making fun of us, making fun of me, when they say, oh, you're a fire and brimstone preacher. Yes, we believe in righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. I believe there's fire and brimstone where people go that die lost. Yes, that's what I am. That's, what, that's how the Holy Spirit leads in preaching. Praise the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. That's preaching. Oh, we don't want a preacher. I know. You want somebody with laced underwear. That's what you want. John chapter 16, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go from you. For if I go not from you, the Spirit will not come unto you. But when he has come, he will approve the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because uh, the prince of this world... Uh, let's see, of sin, because you believe not in me, of righteous, because I go to the Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Righteousness, 
judgment, sin, that's spirit-filled preaching. And what did they do in their preaching? Man, they told the people what they had done, how they are responsible. They'd sinned against God, told them how to get saved, told them what Jesus did, who he was. They had to get it right. You see, it is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And I'll tell you what, most of our generation today has no fear of God. The truth is, most of them do not need to hear, God loves you. They already believe he does. But what they mean by that love is something totally different than what God means by that love. They think God won't send them to hell because he's love. Well, God sends sinners to go to hell. Uh, He sends sinners to hell if they die without his son. He makes that very plain. Now, it is the fear of God that man must first have. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Psalm 89 and verse 7. uh, The Lord is greatly to be feared in the assembly of his saints. Isaiah 33, verses 6 and 7. The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Now turn over to Acts chapter 5. Man, I'm getting close to being done. At least I'm closer than what I was. Acts chapter 5. This is such good stuff, man. What's amazing is the Christians that don't understand it. Next chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira bring an offering to God and God kills them for it. No, he doesn't kill them for the offering. He kills them for lying about how much they were giving. They had lied to God. They had lied to the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. Ananias first, she wasn't there when he first came in with the offering. God killed him. They took him out. She comes in three hours later. He says, did... Did you give so much for the land? She said, yes. He said, well, the same men that carried you out are going to carry you out. Uh, Carried your husband out are going to carry you out. Listen, um, the God of love kills people. That shouldn't shock us. But it sounds shocking today, doesn't it? And what happened when he killed those people? Notice in verse 11. And great fear came upon all the church. And upon as many as heard these things, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and the rest of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. Now, notice, most people would not think of this as a spring campaign to build your attendance. But notice what happened. I mean, it says right here, people were afraid to join them. All right. It says, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. You see, when people got a proper fear of the God of love, when they had that proper fear, the beginning of knowledge, then people really got born again. Right. 
Acts chapter 9. You don't need to turn there. Verse 31, it says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. In Acts chapter 15, go over to Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 15, they give the decrees for the Gentile churches to keep. So Paul and Silas go out and they're taking these decrees to these Gentile churches. And you'll notice in verses 5 and 6, verse 4 and 5, it says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. You realize when people realized the church had some standards, that God's people were to live right, they were to do right, there were certain things God's people weren't supposed to do, and these people decided they'd obey God, God added to the church daily. God's addition is much better than ours. You already know Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We quote that all the time. So here's a question. With the Holy Spirit, would the Holy Spirit ever lead you to disobey the Word of God? He's the one that wrote it. He's not schizophrenic. When people try to tell you, you know, for instance, I've had a lady one time. I was on the radio in Chattanooga, Tennessee, working my way through school. And I had a lady call one day. There was a question and answer time. She asked me about women preachers. And I said, no, God doesn't allow it in the church. For I suffer not a woman to teach and assert authority over the man, but to be in silence. And she came up with this. She said, isn't Jesus the word? I said, yes, he is. Well, didn't Mary carry the word? (laughs) I said, yeah, but she wasn't preaching. (laughs) Then she said, but the Holy Spirit called me to preach. Not the one who wrote this book, he didn't. I mean, this book is plain. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead people to do what he told them not to do. And we have some very clear warnings. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul says, For I have shunned, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves, to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. His reasons for writing 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. His reason for writing in 2 Timothy states very clearly in chapter 4, after telling him to preach the word, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And these false grace people, 
and Calvinist teaching their false stuff to anybody who will listen. And boy, I'll tell you, there's all kinds of book publishers out there that will publish their garbage. And of course, they can put it on the internet, just get a blog, and suddenly you are an expert automatically. But there's a gigantic difference between us and them. We preach Christ, earnestly seeking the lost, and practical holiness for the saved. They preach against godly living, and why... uh, and that the movies and rock music are all right because we're under grace. Romans 16, 17. I'm on my last page. Almost done. Romans 16 and 17. I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. That means you don't get on their blog. You don't dialogue. A heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Now notice he goes on to say, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I'm glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Titus chapter three, verses nine through 11. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. Now here's what all this comes down to. Either they're right in spite of their false Bibles, in spite of their false teaching about grace, their false teaching about God's word and the law, their false teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. Either they're right or the Bible's just wrong. And they really are their own Bible. And what this church has always stood for, when I say this church, it's far more than just Brother Allison. I mean, Brother Stark began it. Uh, But you look at the men of God we've had here from Brother Puente, Brother Lewis, Brother Nelson, uh, Brother Cook, Brother Myers, uh, the Nichols, the whole clan, um, Brother Brown, Brother Bryant. Go through a list of names. Founder of our Bible Institute is Brother Russell Davis. What a good, godly, solid man. You see... What each Christian needs to decide, I'm trying to, I'm trying to save somebody, just a whole lot of mess and confusion in your life. I want you to stand for the truth. You're not going to get to the truth by debate. You're going to have to get to the truth by simply believing what God says. You don't have to change the words. God knows what he meant rip, and wrote what he meant. But if just 10,000 instructors are going to be your teachers, you're going to be as confused as a yo-yo. By the way, if these instructors become your teachers, then meet together any day of the week at any place, sing Kubaya, read a couple verses from your unfaithful translation to the book, and then go into the movie house and watch a movie. Because that's where you're at. It's what you are. 
Paul had to call the people back to himself and what he had given them. My job as a pastor is simply to call people to what God just clearly says. If you've got to keep dividing the word to get any sense out of it, then you're cutting things in the wrong places. You do it in context, God makes his word very plain, very sure. As you know, my problem with Calvinism, I I think there's a number of problems, a false definition of the sovereignty of God. They want God to be sovereign so that anything that he declares, anything he decides, uh, he's got a right to do it. So on that basis, if he's a sovereign God, if he wants everybody to get saved and they all don't get saved, then he's not sovereign anymore. That's what they say. But we say God is sovereign, and if God wants to give man a free will, he can do it because he's God. And according to the scripture, that's what it tells us he did. He gave man a free will. That's plain. How can that be too hard? Well, you're robbing God of glory. No, I've given him great glory that he would even provide a way of salvation for anybody and give you, he doesn't make you a robot. He gives you an opportunity to choose. If you die and go to hell, it's not on him, it's on you. It's your fault. Now, because it's what it clearly says. To believe their nonsense, then you have to believe all doesn't mean all, every doesn't mean every, world doesn't mean world. Every time it shows up in the New Testament when it's talking about salvation, God doesn't mean what he's saying, he's lying to you. Well, that would make God a deceiver. God wouldn't do that. He doesn't do that. Now listen, teenagers, you can get this. Teenagers, you can get this. And you need to get it now. Because there are a lot of people out there ready to deceive you. You singles, you need to get grounded in this stuff. You need to get it now. Yes, while you're young, or you're going to end up marrying somebody who's all mixed up doctrinally. And it'll mess up your life for the rest of your life. You need to get it now. And for the rest of us much older people, we need to keep it. We know it. We see what it says. Don't question it. Just believe it. God said it. I'm going to close with this last two verses. Maybe three. Joshua chapter 1, and we'll be done. I appreciate your patience tonight. We've gotten spoiled by COVID. I've often told people about Madison Baptist Church that we don't come to church to go home. New leadership, Moses is dead. Joshua's taken over. They're about to go into the promised land. And God says to Joshua, only be thou strong and very courageous. What, to fight the Canaanites? Nope. He says, only be strong, be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. God says, you be strong and courageous, Joshua. Yeah, I know we're going to go out and we're going to fight some Ammonites and we're going to fight some Philip. No, no, no. No, you be strong and courageous to keep my word. You keep my word. Because if Israel doesn't keep my word, I'm going to have to kick them back out of the land. Keep my word.
Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this night together. Lord, we will have an invitation. I don't know how to lead it. Uh, perhaps some need to come and say, Lord, just keep me strong. I want to stand by your word and by your truth and not be swayed by smooth-sounding words that a lot of these people are, are talking. And they lead many astray with their garbage. God, please, you just have your way in this invitation, I pray. In Jesus' name.